Now, uh, tonight I've got several things I've had to pray uh, about what the Lord would have me to bring to you, and I'm going to ask you to look at Acts 14. Uh, this is something that I want to emphasize tonight. Uh, if you'll look at Acts chapter 14, <clears throat> the Lord's calling on my life was not to a place, but to a ministry. And so many people worry about the place to where they forget that when they get there, they're supposed to do something. And uh, it is important to know where God would have us to serve, but that can change a number of times through the years uh, because of circumstances and other situations. And those same situations and circumstances are one of the reasons why I am such a fanatic on the Bible teaching and example of establishing what are known as indigenous churches. In Acts chapter 14, verse 21, let's just read these very hurriedly, and I'll just point out a couple of things before we go to 2 Corinthians. In verse 21 of Acts 14, it says, And when they had preached the gospel, underline that, because that's what missions is all about. Uh, in all of these years as missionaries, I've met people who thought that just because they were going to go live in a certain country, that was being a missionary or because they were going to do something else. But uh, missionaries are supposed to be preachers of the word of God. And uh, so they preach the gospel to that city. And, uh, of course, I, I emphasize the fact that they didn't just pick one neighborhood and preach to that neighborhood. They preached to the whole place, to all the people in that city. But God did a very special work. And it is very important that the missionary know how God is leading because he is the Lord of the harvest uh, he, through the Holy Spirit, touches people's hearts, and thank God that he does that, and he's still calling people. I'm not sure that uh, all the people the Lord is calling to serve in the ministry are responding in a positive way. Uh, it seems like there are a whole lot that maybe should, but maybe there's some who shouldn't. Uh, but he, uh, he sent them to the whole city because he sent us to the whole world. And so they ministered to the whole city. There, there was no room for prejudice and for uh, some of the things that uh, override even in Christian circles here in, a, in our country. I think one of the most horrible things that I ever heard when a young missionary was trying to raise his support to uh, reach out to the some 30 million Hispanic people that lived in the United States. Now there's close to 50 million but one pastor told him, if those people want to hear the gospel, go back to Mexico where they came from because we have missionaries in Mexico. And I thought, how in the world could a, a pastor make a statement like that? Or another pastor said, if, if they want to hear the gospel, they need to learn English. Well, most of them are and have, and we have a new generation of Hispanics now who are bilingual because they've grown up in Spanish-speaking homes but they've also learned English because they've been in school every day. And so uh, they've done that. But for an individual to say, I'm not interested in getting the gospel to somebody unless they go home where we have missionaries or unless they uh, learn to speak English. And uh, you just soon let them die and go to hell, I guess, because some of the older people might never learn English. But they are still candidates to hear the gospel. But I, I really believe with all of my heart that sometimes we develop ideas that are crazy. If you want to know what God thinks about foreigners living in our society, all you have to do is read Le Leviticus 18, and you'll find that we are not to vex the, the stranger who lives among us. Actually, those verses God told the Jews 
You need to love them as yourself. Wow. Doesn't sound to me like some of those pastors uh, know what that's all about. But I think we need to understand whether they are Afghanis that are going to come, they're going to be here, or whether they're the Spanish that are here and coming, and our government is allowing more and more to come. What are we going to do? Well, bless God, they should stay where they're supposed to be. I know they're illegal, most of them. In fact, those uh, some uh, million and a half that have come in this year are illegal. They've not had documentation, and that's sad. But our government is responsible. If you knew the poverty that they have lived in and the stresses that they have lived under because of the, the cartels and the gangs and all of that other stuff, and you had little kids, I think you'd probably want to pack them up and come too. Because everybody in the world would like to live in America, at least right now, another four or five years down the road, and it may not be that way. But that's just a, a little pet peeve of mine is that we need to overcome our prejudices toward the people who live all around us that don't look like we do, they don't talk like we do. Uh, they even may be from New Jersey. <laughs> right, Kathy? <laughs> but uh, my, what a special person, special family. All right, well, I got to go ahead because this is not my message. This is just a side pocket here. And notice that after they had preached the gospel, God had blessed in a very marvelous way because they were able to teach many. Now, that's the second step. We cannot just do evangelism. We have to do discipleship as well. And there has to be a balance. You can't neglect the evangelism because you're not going to have anybody to mentor or teach. And you can't just emphasize the teaching because we're supposed to do both. That's Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And so they were able to teach many, and that tells me that they had been able to see a number of people come to know the Lord as their Savior. Now, that's not typical on every field. And just because a missionary goes to a field where he's not able to send a prayer letter home, where he's had 1,000 people saved in the last six months, doesn't mean that he's falling down on his responsibility. You may not win but one. In fact, you may not win even one. I think one of the strongest testimonies I ever heard was Ron Bragg when he stood and wept with tears in his eyes. He'd been on the field for four years and had not led one single African man to the Lord. He was trying to get his family packed up and shipped back to the States and figure out how he could get back to the States. He felt like he was a failure because he'd spent four years there. When in the midst of all of this, Brother Ron said there was a knock at the door. And when he opened the door, there were four Muslim men. And those men said, Teacher, we've been watching you, and we think it's time to trust your Savior. And those four men were the first of many that came to know the Lord as Savior. And, of course, the Godfrey's know better about all that than I do because they were right there uh, with Brother uh, Ron and his wife, Donna, and just thank God for testimonies like that. But they taught many. Why? Because they had done evangelism, evangelization in that city. And so notice what it says as we hurried on through the rest of it. They returned again to some other places. And then notice verse 22. And they confirmed the souls of the disciples 
and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation, that doesn't say the great tribulation, but there will be and there is tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And verse 23, and when they had ordained them elders in every church, see, they established leadership. They did what we can call evangelization. We can call the second part what the instruction the, the teaching, the discipleship, but they also did something that allowed them to have men who could serve as pastors, elders, bishops in those churches. So there was leadership. And I'm here to tell you this evening that if you're going to establish an indigenous church on the mission field or anywhere else, because the world is the field, and that same thing is true in America, you're going to have to do evangelism. You're going to have to do discipleship. And you're going to have to train men to be leaders. And, of course, women along the way, is, uh, too, because every uh, they say every good man's got a better wife, uh, a better woman that's his, her, his wife. And that's true. Uh, we thank God for our wives as I thank God for Patsy. But now, you see, if you don't do evangelism, there will be no discipleship. If you don't do discipleship, there will be no leadership. And if there is no leadership, there will be no indigenous church. There's got to be all three things. Now, let me uh, ask you, if you would, to go with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, I want you to take this idea home with you tonight. And uh, just uh, when you think about it, just think, well, Brother Green gave us some scripture tonight. Uh, and he presented the idea of indigenous churches. Now, uh, Ms. Henry can verify this, and maybe uh, these folk that have been down in Brazil. But here's a little book called in, uh, Autonomous Churches, Iglesias Autonomas. And uh, this is a Spanish book. It's the Spanish version of an English book that the Lord let me write. Uh, it's on church planting. Now, I didn't use the word indigenous because when you talk about indigenous people in Spanish countries, you're talking about the little natives that live up in the mountain villages. And so all the people that are sophisticated that live down in the cities, they get upset if you talk about an indigenous church. They don't want to come. But now the word autonomous means the same thing. And what is an autonomous church? What is a, uh, an indigenous church? It is a church that is, first of all, self-governing. You notice they ordained elders in every church. There has to be leadership that is prepared in the word of God to be able to direct the ministry through prayer and following the principles of God's word. Now, I just said something that is uh, super important. Leadership that is not grounded in the word of God is not real good leadership. Leadership that is, doesn't know what prayer is all about is not good leadership. So you've got to teach people to be grounded in the word of God and make decisions for themselves and their families and for the church family that are grounded in God's word. And when those decisions are made, then God's able to bless. But when they're not made that way, then there's a mess. Now, the first thing that I mentioned is the fact that an indigenous or autonomous church needs to be self-governing. Hans and I spent a number of years in Central America. We've been involved in ministry here in the States and had the privilege of establishing several ministries and at least a couple of churches, Hispanic churches. And what have we sought? We have sought to lead people to Christ. We have sought to disciple those people. And by the way, folks, 
Only through the work of the Holy Spirit does anybody ever get saved. It's not because of me and and my uh, intimidation. It's not because of uh, my ability to speak Spanish uh, better than maybe some. It's not because of all the techniques that I've learned through these 61 years of preaching the gospel. It's because God takes his word that comes from these unworthy lips and he blesses it through the Holy Spirit and people get under conviction. I'm amazed. I'm going to hand out... uh, couple of pictures here and uh, don't jump ahead of me and uh, say brother green you need to practice what you're preaching but I've got a picture here that uh, I'm going to hold up and this is a typical uh, situation that you would see in Latin America Uh, I would imagine you'd see something similar if you go to Brazil or if you go to Peru or uh, if you go to Honduras I know it's true if you or Panama If you go to El Salvador, this is what San Miguel looked like uh, when we went there in 1973. Now, that's a Catholic church right in the middle of town. Why did we go there? Because the Lord had called us into the ministry of evangelizing, of discipleship, and of establishing churches on the field. And when we went to San Miguel, I investigated to find out if there were other uh, independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, soul-winning Baptist churches in the city of San Miguel. There were 100,000 people there. I found that a missionary from another town had come for some 20 years to San Miguel and had a group of about 15 people that he was working with. And every time he would have a group of people come from the States, their number would swell up to about 100 Uh, because he'd bring people from all over the rest of the country to make it look like he had something really going. But 20 years, 15 people. And uh, I I found there was a First Baptist Church there. And so being ethical as I try to be, I went to sit down with the pastor of the First Baptist Church. It was an American Baptist Church or Northern Baptist Church. They sort of changed their name from America to from a North, Northern Baptist to American Baptist. One of the, they were one of the first groups to go liberal in the United States. But they had a church in this city. And uh, so I sat down with him and I, I started asking him questions. And I said, Pastor, tell me about what God's doing here. He, I said, how long you been here? He said, well, this church is 100 years old. 100 years old. Wow, I didn't know missionaries had ever been here, but there were. Somebody was, and they started this First Baptist Church. And I said, "Uh, how many people do you have in attendance? He said, we have about 90. Wow. I didn't say anything. I'm nice. Don't want to be intimidating. But I thought in my mind, you've been here 100 years, and you have 90 people? And they had a nice building. That wasn't the problem. They, they were in the central location of town. That wasn't the problem. The problem was nobody had a burden to win souls to Christ and disciple people and establish a church. So I, I said, well, do you have any folk get saved and baptized each year? He said, well, sometimes we'll have two people a year except the Lord, and we usually baptize one of the two. And so I said, uh, well, Pastor, I'm here to tell you this. God's led me into the ministry as a missionary, and we're coming to San Miguel. And uh, he said, wait a minute. He said, I know what you're going to do. You're going to come down here with all that money you get from the United States, and you're going to steal all my members. 
And I said, well, Pastor, I want to assure you of something. We're going to go on the other side of town. We're going to rent a building that was a pharmacy, and we're going to start right there. And uh, it, it was amazing. You know, it, God was in us being there. It was the hottest place in El Salvador. Patsy suffered terribly because she internalizes whatever heat there is, and it causes hives. But she never complained. She went right ahead and served alongside of me. And when we were moving into our apartment that was as hot as an oven, they had to put the electrical stuff in, and young man was there helping the electrician. And the electrician said, i got to go buy this stuff to install the lights, etc. So you just sit here and wait for me. Well, hey, it's like putting a bone in front of a dog, especially if it's got a big piece of meat on it. As soon as he left, I said to the young man, what's your name? He said, Jose. I think about half of the guys in Latin America are named Jose. Uh, half of the women are named Maria. And uh, I understand that, okay, from their traditions. But I began to witness to Jose. He was 18 years of age. He, I didn't ask him. He, he just volunteered. He said, I'm a drunk. He said, I smoke. I go to the houses of prostitution. He said, I know I'm a sinner and I need to get saved. I said, would you like to trust the Lord right now? And he did. And he was the first convert in that city of San Miguel. It all started right there. We had uh, six students from the Bible Institute Ibero come and spend about a month or six weeks with us. And they helped us knock on doors and do things to get folk aware of what we were doing. But I assured the pastor, I said, we're going over yonder. We're not going to bother your people. I said, I understand there are 100,000 people here in San Miguel. He said, yeah, that's about right. I said, well, you've got 90 of them. I want the other, uh, <laughs> other 99,600. <laughs> that's who we're going to look for. And you know, folk, honest before God, we never took one of his people. We never took one of them. One came one time and said he wanted to be a member, but his wife was a teacher at this First Baptist Church, and we just finally convinced him that he shouldn't be there, that he needed to go back to First Baptist. And uh, so anyway, what I'm saying is this. I showed you that picture, and then I want to show you this one. This is a picture of Pastor Roberto Nieto. Uh, if if y'all would like to have a one of these to pass around, I'll, I'll give you one. Uh, uh, let's see, brother, you want to take that? And you can start it over here and uh, just look at both sides and then send it, put it to the next person. But uh, here we have this young man. He's baptizing a young boy. I would imagine this boy is 13 or 14 years of age. I'm thrilled to know that he got saved. His mom, uh, grandmother, Bilma, uh, got, was going to give birth to this boy's daddy. And uh, <clears throat> when they gave her anesthesia, she passed out. Her heart stopped beating. They got her revived, and by God's grace, Patsy and I were there. We had an airplane, and we could fly Vilma, uh, pregnant nine months, scared to death that she was going to die on the way to get to the hospital in San Salvador. But she made it there, and three days later, she gave birth to this boy's daddy, Roberto Carlo. And I said, God, you know, you're so good. You let me learn how to fly. You gave me an airplane, a church in North Carolina did. You let me be here to help save that lady's life. 
Years later, Roberto Carlo, at 12 years of age, came and said, Brother Green, thank you for flying us to the hospital when, when my mom was expecting me, and thank you for starting this church because I've trusted the Lord as my Savior. And now I'm looking at Vilma's grandson who is being baptized after having trusted the Lord as her Savior. I tell you what, you can invest money, and when you die, it's all over. But you can sow seeds of the gospel and just keep on reaping. Just keep on accumulating. And I look at the man who is baptizing this young boy, Roberto. He was 17 years old when he trusted the Lord as his Savior, and he was also one of the first members of the church there. And uh, Andrew, would you pass that out over here? And then I want to uh, show you this picture, and I'll, I'll pass it out. Uh, brother, you wanna, one of you want to take this? And it's got a picture on the back side, but uh, you do that. I'm not going to hand this one out yet, Andrew. I'm going to have to explain this. You see, we started with one young man named Jose. Brother Roy Ackerley came down, great man, played his accordion, sang, preached for us. Roberto, the man doing the baptizing, is pastor of the tabernacle in San Miguel. And he accepted the Lord when Brother Ackerley was there. And that's important important. I mean, he was just a young man, 17 years of age, and now he pastors this church, the Tabernacle. And before COVID, it averaged over 600 in attendance every Sunday. And they are the mother church of as many as 70 additional churches. Now, Brother Green, you're a great missionary. Mm -mm. This all happened, not his salvation, not the starting of that church, not the establishing of that church, not the discipleship, Etc. Etc. No, I was there six years, but I've been gone since 1979. So how in the world is, is it, Brother Green, that now there are a dozen independent fundamental Bible-believing churches in San Miguel, and you hadn't been there because I didn't build the ministry around myself. I built it around the Lord. And I trained these men to be able to preach the Word of God, to know the Word of God, and know how to pray, and know how to make decisions, and self-govern the churches that they were pastoring. And that's why they, under, like Roberto's ministry right now, he, he sent me a note uh, Monday saying, Brother Green, uh, just came back from Champaltique. We're starting another new church over there. And I'm saying to myself, I didn't do all of that. And I'm going, to, I'm going to stand here and ask you to look at something with me in 2 Corinthians. Now, uh, by the way, here's another picture. There are over 20, probably 30 or 40 pastors in Guatemala City. I had the privilege of preaching to them uh, several years ago. Can I take credit for everything those guys have done in God's will? No. The fact is God's done a work in their hearts. I'm just one individual that has uh, said, had some touch or influence in their lives. But the Holy Spirit is the one who has taken them and multiplied their ministries in starting churches, winning souls, not only in Guatemala, but in Honduras and El Salvador, and maybe even as far as Nicaragua. Now you can have it, brother, if you want to. And uh, sometimes it helps me to see a picture. But I want you to see the gist of the message tonight in, in 2 Corinthians. Indigenous churches are self-governing. Now, I'm going to give you some other words, three more words. 
that are so important. Now, please listen to what I'm saying. I am so thankful for the generosity of American Christians. Do you hear me say that? The generosity of American Christians, people from the United States in churches just like this, and I'm so grateful for our generosity, but sometimes we give without praying. And sometimes a person comes along and paints a beautiful picture or tells a nice little story, and we just empty our wallets out, and we didn't pray one single moment about it. Now you say, Brother Green, are you against giving? No, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But there's a problem when churches on the foreign field are dependent on fundings from America. Because the same God who meets your needs and my needs as members of Lakewood Baptist Church can meet the needs of people on the foreign field. Now, if I didn't believe that, I'd get out of the ministry right now. The same God who convicted us and saved us and allowed us to be indoctrinated in the fundamentals of the Word of God can do the same in the lives of other people. And there's not a qualification on Acts 20, verse 35, where the Lord, according to Luke's writing, and, and the words are inspired Word of God, Luke wrote that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it is. But when we don't teach the people on the foreign field to be supportive of their own ministry, we are cheating them, we are robbing them. And I know that the Bible tells us that there's a place in the north. And you Yankees can enjoy that if you want to. Okay? Uh, there's a place in the north, out beyond the north star, out further than the stars is where God dwells. Too many times as missionaries in Latin America, we've taught people that the, the Lord can only answer through those of the north, the United States. And so people in America, we need to stop and think about what we're doing. We need to establish indigenous churches that are self-governing. They don't need to have somebody dictate to them and tell them what to do other than God himself through the word of God and the Holy Spirit. We don't need to teach them that the missionary is going to meet all of their needs financially. We need to teach them to not look to the missionary or to the United States of North America, but look to the God of heaven. Because our resources are limited. God's are unlimited. Paul said to the Philippians, but my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. According to his riches in glory. And you could take out of them all day long and they're never going to diminish. But now wait a minute. What happens when a missionary builds a church on the foreign field around himself and around finances from the United States? He leaves, he dies, he goes to another field, he gets out of the ministry, uh, a dozen different things. The resources that he has taught the people to look for, for from the United States can diminish. See, we have no promise that we're going to be able to continue at the rate we are continuing as far as our giving is concerned. 
You say, Brother Green, this is awfully negative. No, if we can teach the people, do you think that tithing is just for Americans? I don't. I think that is, there's a blessing in tithing. And if I fail to teach the people that I'm winning to the Lord and discipling that it's important for them to tithe. And I've had more nationals tell me we're too poor to tithe. Have you ever stopped to think that one of the reasons you may be too poor is because you don't tithe? You're robbing God. If you get right with God, God can meet your needs. You say, well, how do you know that, Brother Green? See that church? The only money that I invested in those guys was when they were studying with me. I, I provided a place to live in the church for them, and we supplied the money for their food and sometimes some clothing. But when we left, all that came to a halt. And how much money, Brother Green, did you send them to build that building? Where'd they get it? See, which is better? For us to make welfare cases out of the people and, and have them dependent upon us or teach them to be dependent on God. God has promised to meet their needs if they will honor him. And you say, well, Brother Green, that's okay for you. I mean, uh, but mm, no, it's, it's biblical. Churches ought to be self-governing, self-supporting. And then the last thing they ought to do is be self-propagating. Now, you say, well, what is that all about? When a church is established on the field, it ought to establish another church. Dr. Ray Thompson used to say, and he was Dr. Sisk's sidekick, he used to say the mission of missions is missions. And the mission of missions is church planting. And I believe that with all of my heart. If you could read this in Spanish, you'd see that I quote Dr. Thompson. And I'd probably quote Dr. Sisk in here somewhere. I didn't want to tell him if I did. <laughs> I didn't want to tell him if I did because he might charge me for putting his name in there. But Dr. Thompson was right when he'd say the mission of missions is, is missions. And you know that because you are a missionary church. And that's one of the reasons we're here. And that's why, boy, what a blessing to read the bulletin when it says we need $2,500 a a week to take care of the missions budget and last week there was over 3500 or something like that I don't know exact numbers but uh, I thank God for the generosity of this church but wait a minute isn't it far better to establish a church on the field in El Salvador that can support their pastor that can support missionaries out of their church and plant dozens of new churches. You can ask uh, missionaries in the Philippines about that. Bruce Rice and Rick Martin, some other people that are there. You can ask them about the importance of establishing churches on the field that are self-governing. And the Dwyers, I'm, I don't know that much about their ministry, but I know that they have great legacy in their parents. But they're establishing churches that are self-governing, self-supporting and self-propagating. 
The idea is that missions is from a local church to a local church, from a local church to a local church. And if people would get that in their minds, they would find that God wants to do just that. Send people from a local church to start a local church that can send folk to start other churches on the field. And I'm sold on that. And you can tell I'm sold on that. Why? I can give you a dozen and I won't take time to do all of that. But one reason, for example, is if the missionaries in Venezuela did not establish autonomous churches, those churches are in trouble. Because the government changed from one that was uh, accepted foreign missionaries and accepted the gospel to a government that is uh, socialistic, that has persecuted its own people, and the economy of Venezuela is ruined. And if they did not know how to trust God before uh, Madero or whatever his name is took over, uh, they're learning now. But my, it'd be far better to teach people ahead of time to look to God and not to North America. Now, I ask you to read with me, and I want you to look at uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Well, let's go to verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. Now, you... you if you think that I showed you these pictures so that I could commend myself, I've already told you. I didn't do that. We only sowed the initial seeds. God's Holy Spirit took those national men and they built churches that are indigenous churches on the field. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't receive an offering. It doesn't mean that they can't have some temporary help for the missionaries that are going out of their churches. Your missionaries are supported by a lot of other churches. And there was a fund called the Omega Fund, which was started by a church up in uh, Wisconsin. And that church would send like $100 a month to a national missionary through a national church that would hold him accountable. And that support would be only for one year. In other words, that national missionary did not come to the place where they were totally dependent on that offering from Omega. And see, what happened? They went out and won souls and built churches that are building churches. And I'm not talking about block buildings. I'm talking about the real church. You don't have to have a beautiful building like this to have a church. You can have a building without a church. But you can't have a real church without the indwelling Holy Spirit in the lives of people, even if you meet under a mango tree somewhere. But notice that Paul says this. We're not going to compare ourselves to other people. I heard a big-time pastor make the statement. I didn't hear him personally, but a person who I trust made the statement. said He said that if a missionary didn't baptize 200 people in a year, they weren't worthy of support. Try telling that to somebody in Japan. Try telling that to somebody in London, England. Try to tell that to a missionary that lives out in the Sahara Desert and works with the nomads. Somebody's out of step with the scripture. That didn't bother me a bit. And we did baptize over 200 people several years in San Miguel. Uh, 
and we thank God for it. But was it me? No, it was God's Holy Spirit using God's Holy Word to convict and draw people to the Savior and get them saved. But I want you to go ahead with me, verse 13. We will not boast of things without our measure. Hmm. If I stood here tonight and told you all those 70 or 80 churches out of the church in San Miguel, what would I be doing? I'd be violating scripture because I, I have no room to boast. If God's Holy Spirit had not taken the word of God and done what he did, there wouldn't be anything there. And if God had not worked in the heart of those national Christians, there would be nothing there. You see, thank God for the privilege. But we put too much importance on the man. We need to put more importance on God and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And so he says, we're not about to boast of things without our measure. I mean, I hadn't been there since 1979, but uh, three or four times to visit for a week. And I love what the nationals told me when we left in 1979. He said, Brother Green, we don't want you to leave, but this war is escalating. And if you stay, you're going to be kidnapped and you'll probably be killed. And we don't want you to be killed or kidnapped. And I didn't have dying grace, so I sent my family out and I got on the plane and left. And there's been other churches established and started. And when I went back after three or four years during the war, they said, Brother Green, we didn't want you to leave, but we're so glad you did because we were willing to let you do what we ought to be doing as long as you were here. And I said, I'm so glad that God moved us away so that you could know what it is to depend on a holy God who has obligated himself to provide for you and meet your needs and bless the preaching of the word of God. Well, I've got to shut up. My time is up. But, folk, we don't have to boast. The only boasting we ought to do is that we know a Savior who died for unworthy sinners and that in his grace... He gave us as unworthy saved sinners the opportunity to serve him. And some of us have had the privilege to go to places where there was a real, real need for a gospel church. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you for your attention tonight. I hope that you'll take a couple of things home with you from this. And one is that God gives us the privilege of serving him, but if it were not for him, there'd be nothing accomplished. But I trust that you would also take home this idea that we need to work toward establishing autonomous churches that are built around the word of God and around the Lord. And as the, as the scripture says, if we're going to glory, let us glory in the Lord.